tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. 190 on the sci-fi, about 200, two and a quarter, two and a half. Great unused models. What drew a young man like you to antiques? There's nothing else like it. And what's funny, I try to explain to my friends today, uh, who I went to high school with and college, and they're like, how can you be into all this stuff? You know, knickknacks, dust collecting. I'm like, no, it's not, it's cool, it's history. So when the Carolina Wren begins to show up in Rhode Island several years ago, that's a signal that climate change is, is having an effect. The favorite part about uh, fishing is catching fish because you get to see what kind of fish you caught. And how many did you catch today? Um, one. I became extremely depressed and withdrew myself from my friends and my family and eventually tried killing myself. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. We begin with something old and something maybe not so old. If you think of antiques as dusty furniture and your grandmother's china set, you'd better take a fresh look in your attic. Today, Transformers, Star Wars figures, and Pokemon cards are collectibles worth big money. Native Rhode Islander Travis Landry knows about that firsthand. He's a young man with an old soul and a keen eye. I loved the arts. And that's where, you know, growing up as a little kid, I was like, oh man, you know, I want to sing, act, do all this stuff. And then I developed the love for antiques, collectibles. And then I figured, how can I merge these two worlds? Cumberland native Travis Landry got those two worlds to merge by joining the team on Antiques Roadshow. This is hotter than fire. The demand for these cards is uncontrollable. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I feel like I don't work a day in my life. I just play with toys and cool stuff. So I'm a nerd, right? Like, yeah. But, you know, I'm a dedicated nerd. And I've taken all this time to study and put into this practice, just like someone who wants to become a doctor or a lawyer. Landry has been putting his knowledge into practice on Antiques Roadshow since he was just 20 years old. Now at 27, he's the youngest appraiser on the long-running PBS program. Landry is of the generation that can value items such as Magic the Gathering cards, a precursor of the Pokemon craze. So cumulatively, you're looking at, at auction between $65,000 and $100,000 in trading cards here. Oh my here. gosh. 100 now, 110. I have 100 on the early MI model looking for 110. 110 now, 120. Landry specializes in millennial, Gen X, and Gen Z nostalgia. 15 models in that lot. The bid is with Mary at 100 go 110. Landry's full-time job is as an auctioneer at Bruno & Company in Cranston, where he's the director of pop culture. 190 on the sci-fi, about 200, two and a quarter, two and a half. Great unused models. What drew a young man like you to antiques? There's nothing else like it. And what's funny, I try to explain to my friends today, uh, who I went to high school with and college, and they're like, how can you be into all this stuff? You know, knickknacks, dust collecting. I'm like, no, it's not. It's cool. It's history. His history reveals why he's so at home in an auction house. I grew up going to auctions every week with my parents. Uh, going, They collected pottery, like more traditional antiques. I mean, there were some weeks we go to four auctions in a week. You know, Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday, Friday. 
And then if it was a big auction, it'd be like a Saturday day sale, going to a lot of on-site auctions. I was going there literally since, as my dad will say, a baby in my mom's arms. Landry's mom was a nurse, his father a captain on the Woonsocket Police Force. They shared a passion for treasure hunting, and Landry caught the bug. And I was hooked, absolutely hooked. You know, and I would just spend all my time looking for toys. We've driven to Wisconsin, Michigan, buying collections, um, just because on the hunt for them, you know, and it's all I wanted to do all day long, every day. Is it as fun as it looks? It is as fun as it looks. I mean, I've been doing this since, as long as I can remember, since I was 13 years old. That's when Landry went from accumulating toys to making his first big sale. He borrowed money from his dad to buy a bounty of Transformers from a private collector. So I buy it for 700 the collection, sell everything for $1,400, double up on my money, and I get to keep the best piece that I still have today. You know, it was a 1984 Mirage, uh, what they call pre-rub, a little nerd terminology for the first Transformers that came out. With growing nerd knowledge, a chance to be on TV came along. However, Antiques Roadshow was not his first rodeo. My name is Travis, and I've been collecting toys for roughly about 10 years now. I remember the ad, do you want to be part of a new reality TV show? And I was like, okay, I guess, why not? So I responded saying, this is my name, Travis Landry, collect Transformers. And it was for a show at the time called Toy Hunter which was coming out on Travel Channel. I go to a lot of yard sales, flea markets. It's like money in the bank. Landry became a recurring cast member on Toy Hunter while still a student at Mount St. Charles High School. Well, most people seek antiques as a hobby, but did you ever think that you'd have this as your career? So I did not. I was studying nuclear engineering, and I'll never forget, it was my first year in college. I'm in the back of my chemistry class, and that previous summer, I had bought my first painting to sell, and I could sign it at auction. I watched it sell for, you know, five times what I paid. I was like, what am I doing here? He switched his major to art history and went to work at Bruno's auction house. I will say I'm a professional, but I can have fun while being a professional. You know, it's, we're dealing with toys, comics, and cool things. You know, of course I'm going to be enthusiastic. It's awesome. I'll have a 30-minute conversation with a gopher that's in my backyard. You know, I'm just, I'm happy to, I just, I love meeting people, love talking, love having a good time, entertaining. Issue 52, this book is literally hotter than fire. What do you think people might have in their attic or their cellar that they don't realize is valuable? What could you tell them? I know this sounds like a little generic, but really all of pop culture is hot. And what I mean by that is whether it's Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, Masters of the Universe, He-Man, My Little Pony, you know, Princess of Power, or original Nintendo games, and even outside of the toys, I mean, vintage sneakers, t-shirts, it's video games, even VHS tapes are now becoming collectible. You always wanted to play with toys when you grew up. Yeah, or not play, collect, because I never, it's weird, you know, my parents at Christmas time, they'd buy me five, six Transformers, whatever, but it's like I'd take those five toys, go down to my basement and go, boop, on the show. Just shelf. wanted to have them. Just wanted to have it. Yeah, just wanted to have them. I wouldn't play with my toys. Best to save everything in the box. Yes, keep it all. Don't open anything. Because he says they are much more valuable untouched. What Landry collects these days is not what you might expect. His vintage Victrola plays vinyl records from the 50s. Modern art mixes with federal furniture and pottery. Landry says his home isn't cluttered, it's curated. 
my taste is eclectic. The way I like to do it, I don't collect one particular thing anymore. I just try to collect the best examples of all different things along the way. It speaks and to I, you. Yeah, and I just like learning about it because that's, that's the greatest thing about this job and the items is that every single piece has a story behind it. And a good story is what Landry's always looking for. So, prime example, one of my favorite items I've ever appraised on Antiques Roadshow was a Aurora Plastics Godzilla model kit. Just for the sheer fact that I was like, how did you acquire this model? He goes, I needed something to bring to Antiques Roadshow, so I bought this for a dollar at a yard sale last week. I said, really? It's a three to $500 model kit. Not going to light the world on fire value-wise, but that story. You know, we love hearing stories. Things need to be appreciated. History needs to be preserved. I think people should collect. It's something fun. It's something, you know, as my dad will say, it kept me out of trouble. I was, instead of worrying about anything else, you know, I was worrying about understanding toys and looking for the next find. Up next, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's especially true of our next story, part of our continuing series, Green Seeker. We visited the shores of Rose Island, where a Salve Regina professor captures birds in the name of science. This bird is actually fairly fat, so it's doing pretty well. My name is Jim Chase. I'm a professor at Salve Regina University here in Newport, Rhode Island. And what I've been doing over the course of my career, over 20 years, is uh, banding birds as a way to look at populations and how populations change over time. The first instance of bird banding in this country was John James Audubon, who captured a Phoebe on its nest and with his bare hands because they're close sitters and he tied a little string around its leg. And lo and behold, that bird came back to the same nest the next year. In a sense, that's what bird banding is. You're, you're banding birds in a particular location and you're most likely to find those birds if they survive in that location the next year. We're gonna go check the nets. I've got uh, one net here and then four others. The night before, I put the mist nets up in locations where I think that the birds are gonna fly. And I put these in the same place each week. And then right before dawn, I open the net up. And these are such fine nets, the birds really can't see them. And they've been flying back and forth through these little corridors. There's been nothing in their path. They don't even think about it. It'd be like if someone put a net in your doorway. Oh, there we got a bird here. So the bird just sort of gets caught like it's uh, almost in a hammock as it flies straight in. And uh, doesn't get injured because it sort of sits there calmly, usually. I check, I check pretty often. So no bird is hanging for too long. Just a matter of very gently backing them out of the net they just flew into. And there's a song sparrow, another juvenile song sparrow. I put it into a little bag and that holds the bird securely until I can process it back at the banding station. I bring it back to a central banding station where I have all my tools and it's in a safe place away from you know distractions or where the bird could get injured. This is one of the birds, the Carolina wren, that has been expanding its range north, uh, presumably with climate change. 
as a part of it. Wouldn't have found on this island or in Rhode Island really 30 years ago. And here they are breeding and successfully breeding. We've got these Fish and Wildlife Service bands. Each are uniquely marked so that each bird has its own unique number. Unfortunately, the bird was hit a window or died and someone found it and they reported the band number. We would know, I would know it came where it came from here and where it went and they would, the person who found it would know where it was last banded. So those little, little bits of information are just critical. A recent study by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, which came out about two years ago, showed through a variety of different levels of evidence that songbirds, well, birds in general, but songbirds especially, are in a significant de decline since 1970, about 30% fewer birds. So when you think about that, 30% fewer birds, if you're sitting here and you're listening to the birds singing, if you were here in 1970, there'd be 30% more birds singing. It's billions of birds lost. And we, we have lots of ideas as to why um, those birds are being lost. So when the Carolina Wren begins to show up in Rhode Island several years ago, that's a signal that climate change is, is having an effect. And birds are beginning to move and change their ranges. So this is the American goldfinch. They're just a brilliantly uh, patterned bird and feisty. One of the first things I measure very quickly is the wing cord, which gives an idea of body size because birds have different body sizes and their body size to weight ratio is an important index of their health. The last thing I measure is their mass because that's the place where the bird's most likely to escape. And we'll get a weight and then let this guy go. In between those times, I'm looking at measures of the bird's age and sex. It's a female in the summer, I can tell you if she's sitting on eggs now or her eggs are basically, she's done sitting on eggs and she probably has young out of the nest. So I blow on the bird's belly. What they get is they'll get a brood patch. They'll lose the feathers across their breast and that's what they can sit on the eggs with. Birds uh, hold a special fascination for me because they're colorful, they're out during the daytime, they sing, you can identify them by their songs and their calls. And then the birds become like the classic canary in a coal mine. They become a bellwether for the environment. So they can tell us a lot about what's going on. Even before we notice that there's environmental changes happening, the birds begin to tell us. Aquatic scholar Eugenie Clark once said, sharing the fun of fishing turns strangers into friends in a few hours. In our next story, we meet a man from Coventry who would most likely agree with that. Five years ago, he was fishing in a local pond when a group of kids approached him and asked if they could borrow one of his fishing poles. That encounter helped start a program that has had an impact on the lives of hundreds of young people, not to mention his own. My name is John Gwechen. I'm the founder of Keeping Kids Fishing. What we do is each Sunday, um, I usually choose uh, a lake in Coventry because it's a big shoreline. Um, I set up a, a table, I put fishing poles out, I put um, um, worms out, gear, dobbers, sinkers, anything the kids would need. 
I advertise it and the kids come and I show them how to fish. And towards the end of the day, if they um, are into it, they, you know, they take their fishing poles home with them. I caught seven fish, eight, around there. Uh, I started, I taught myself at four years old. Uh, my dad worked a couple of jobs and my mom would bring uh, my brother to softball. I wasn't really into sports at four, so I would um, play along the shoreline. There was a pond nearby. And I taught my, like I said, I found some string, I put a hook, I found a hook, and then I dug up some worms and I was on my way. And uh, there's, I realized that there's a lot of kids that um, they don't have anyone to show them. Things are different nowadays, so kids are usually on the phone, so it's nice to have the kids outside doing things and, and not on their phones, right, Sam? Mm -hmm. <laughs> One person uh, brought her son. Uh, he was a gamer. He was always in his room playing on his tablets and playing the games on the computer, and she said she had to drag him out of the house to come to the event, and he had a T-shirt on that said, I paused my game for this, and she brought him back. He had a good day, and he came back the next week with a friend. And then the following week, he came back with two friends. And now he's no longer in his room playing on the games. He's out fishing with his new friends. This helps me because I have a severe neuro Lyme disease and it causes anxiety and manic depressive disorder. And when you see the child catch their first fish, it just takes it all away. The favorite part about uh, fishing is catching fish because you get to see what kind of fish you caught. And how many did you catch today? Um, one. Uh, last year, uh, we had a, um, a fundraiser at Camp Westwood in Coventry, and a little girl had won her first fish, uh, the first fish trophy. And she came up to me with her mom, and she asked me if she could give me a hug. And I look at the mom, and the mom nods, and I, so I gave her a hug. I said, thank you. I, I said, why would you give me a hug? And she says, well, you see this trophy? And I said, yes, you won the first fish. And she goes, no, you got this for me. So I asked her, well, how did I get that trophy for you? She said, you gave me a fishing pole, you show me how to use it, you show me how to cast and how to reel it in and how to put the bait on, and I caught a first fish. You did this, you caught me that first fish. And I was really, really touched. So this, this gives me a good feeling knowing that I'm you know, giving them some education and uh, hopefully some memories to carry on with them. There you go, that's all set. Thank you. Next in our continuing My Take series, we hear from a Boston plumber whose remarkable transformation has been an inspiration to many. Tonight, he gives us his take on being yourself. The benefits of being myself have been love and acceptance from my friends and family and being able to stand on my own two feet, knowing that this is who I was meant to be. Hi, my name is Cole Love and this is my take on being yourself. I'm a son. I'm a husband, I'm a brother, I'm an uncle, and I'm a plumber. Many people are surprised when I tell them that I'm transgender and I was born female. I knew I wanted to be a boy from about the age of four. I never really felt right in my body. It only got worse as I got older. I gravitated more towards masculine things 
I skateboarded. I mostly all my friends were guys, and I just didn't feel right in my body. I tried to suppress it, but that only made things worse. I became extremely depressed and withdrew myself from my friends and my family and eventually tried killing myself. And after that, things got better. I decided to transition, which made things better than I expected. I decided to transition because I needed to be my best self in order to be there for others. It was extremely nerve wracking when I first came out to tell people that I was trans because I didn't pass or meet society's standards of being a man. I f was faced with some backlash because of that. It, led to me extreme depression on my end. But now things are better. Now I've become more comfortable in my own skin. I am extremely open about my trans identity. Me being open has led to other people reaching out to me to talk about their children and their journey or them starting their journey and it's been such an uplifting experience to be able to do that for another person. I, I do have a few family members that took a while to come around, but now they're some of my biggest supporters. I'm really thankful for that. It's important to be yourself because it gives you the ability to be open and to stop hiding and be your live your truth and to be brave, and to have the ability to face anything that comes your way. My advice to anyone looking to make a change, whether that be a job change, moving across the country, state, or even transitioning, is to just do it. Live your truth. Live your happiness. Don't give up, and don't care about what, what other people think because the ones that mind don't matter and the ones that matter don't mind. My name is Cole Love and this has been my take on being yourself. And now, what is art? It's a question that many, even artists themselves, have asked for centuries. This week, a new Rhode Island PBS digital series launched. Art Inc. will explore those questions and the infinite expressions of creativity. Tonight, we share a clip from the first episode. I think I was always curious as a kid what it would be like to be a tiny little person going in through the woods. I think that's pretty universal, really. Like, what kid doesn't like to get down on their knees and check things out? Acorns are little characters I make out of acorns and sticks. I take them outside and I pose them in a little scene 
I wait for animals to come and then I take pictures of them interacting with wildlife. There's a wide variety of personalities in the bee corn world. They tend to be gentle. They're almost always curious and up to something. There are warriors that are defending against squirrels. They definitely are nurturers. They feed the wildlife and care for them. You can see new episodes of Art Inc. every Wednesday on ripbs.org slash artinc. Finally, next week we'll take a look at how dairy farms in Rhode Island are adapting to a changing industry as milk consumption here and around the U.S. is declining. Here's a sneak peek. Louis Escobar's father bought the farm during the Great Depression. Over the years, Escobar Farm has grown to 98 acres as the family amassed neighboring land. Was it harder than you thought it would be to keep the farm running? It has become more difficult every year, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. What do you mean by that? More challenges where people drink less milk. Fluid milk consumption in the United States has been on the decline for more than 70 years, according to the United States Department of Agriculture. It's made it increasingly difficult for the Escobars to make ends meet. They're one of 10 remaining dairy farms in Rhode Island. And I can remember one year we were losing about $7,000 seven a month. And you were, we were getting to come out here and work 12 and 13 and 14 hours a day and losing $7,000 a month. Are you still losing money? To We're this? still losing money, yes. The dairy farmer does not generally control the end price of his or her milk. It's controlled by the federal government. That's far different than almost every other crop that is grown, and that's a big part of the equation. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>